Take your Bible and turn with me, please, to Matthew chapter 6. You have no doubt heard a number of messages on the Lord's Prayer. If you stay with us for about the next 30 minutes, you're going to hear another one. I want to begin a series uh, on the Lord's Prayer and on the, the prayers of the Savior in John 17. Uh, I believe this is a primer. This is, uh, in, in Matthew, this is a primer, and I'll speak to that in a few moments. And in John 17, uh, we see what Jesus prayed for the church. I wonder if you ever thought about what Jesus prayed for the church? Probably not too many of us. But in weeks to come, we're going to take a look at that as well. So that's, we'll take our attention in the Sunday morning messages for the next several weeks. It might be an, an encouragement to you to read through Matthew 6, 9 to 14, and also John 17. Read them together. Read them back to back. And just, just think in your own heart and mind about the prayer life of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's ask his blessing as we look into his word this morning. Shall we pray? You are the eternal God and the giver of all truth. You also give to us the spirit of the Holy Spirit who is uh, the teacher of he is resident within every child of God. He has been sent to remind us of the things that our Savior said, to teach us, to draw us to Him. And we pray this morning that our ears might be open, our hearts might be attuned to heaven. Uh, Father, we, uh, no doubt in a, a room with this many folks, there are thousands of thoughts running through the minds of those who are seated here. Some of last week, perhaps, some of the week to come, perhaps, some of later today, perhaps, some of difficulties and burdens, some of great blessings. There are all kinds of thoughts running through our minds today. I pray, our Father, that you would gather these up and focus them on the Savior and how he wanted us to think about the matter of prayer. We ask in Jesus' name and for his sake, amen. One time two men were arguing about religion. And you know that's a subject that can provoke an argument easily, and sometimes they even get heated. Well, at any rate, these two men were arguing. One thought he knew more about religion than the other. He was sure of it. And the argument got hotter and hotter. And finally, one man turns to the other man and says, You are so ignorant about religion, I bet you can't even remember the Lord's Prayer. In fact, I'm so sure you can't, I'll bet you $5 that you can't recite the Lord's Prayer. And the other man looked at him and smiled and said, I'll take that bet. And he began to recite, Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. Amen. The first man looked at him with an astonished look on his face and says, Okay, you win, but I was sure you couldn't do it. 
Even though that is obviously an apocryphal little story, it serves as my introduction this morning to our subject. Actually, there are many, many prayers in the Bible. I, I wonder how much, because I know me. And so I ask you the question, how many of the prayers of the Bible do you think about? You think about Moses' prayers? What about David? Remember Elijah, his prayers? To me, some of the greatest prayers are, are in, in Ezekiel, excuse me, in Ezra 9 and then in Nehemiah. Some wonderful prayers. Just uh, for me, anyway, grab a hold of my mind and my heart and my soul when I read those prayers. Then there are the prayers of Daniel. Moving on to the New Testament, Peter, Paul, and the prayers of our Lord. I believe that in Matthew 6, verses 9 through 14, we have the quintessential prayer of the Bible. I believe that it is quite likely that this prayer in Matthew 6 is the most quoted verse in all of the Bible. Now, I know somebody sitting here, and, and it, it occurred to me as well, well, no, Pastor, that can't be, because John 3.16, that's got to be, no, no, it can't be John 3.16, it's got to be Psalm 23. And we go on with other verses that we all think, that's got to be the most familiar verse in all the Bible. Well, I come back to Matthew chapter 6 and verse 9, and suggest that that is more than likely the most quoted verse in any prayer or even outside of a prayer in the Bible. And I say that for this reason. Listen, do you know how many churches there are around the globe? And countless thousands of them recite the Lord's Prayer every single Sunday morning. Now, if you just take all the churches around the world, I have no idea how many that would be. I have no I, I, I'm sure that there are small churches, maybe 15, 20, 25 people uh, that, that recite the Lord's Prayer. I, I know that there are churches with 12, 15,000 people recite the Lord's Prayer every single Sunday. So on that basis, I suggest that Matthew 6 is probably, in verse 9, the most quoted verse in all of the Bible. I also would be so bold as to suggest that it is the most misunderstood so far as its interpretation is concerned. Actually, what we have in Matthew 6, verses 9 and following, is a messianic prayer. Ever heard that before? It's a messianic prayer. That's set apart by verse 10. The, the three opening words to verse 10 are, Thy kingdom come. This is a prayer that has to do with the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's coming. Thy kingdom come. He taught his disciples to pray. Thy kingdom come. This prayer is in, in anticipation of the coming of his kingdom. 
Now, unfortunately, the term kingdom is often confused with the word church. Some people read the word kingdom and they understand it to mean church. May I say to you that the two are different entities and should never be confused. We should never substitute kingdom for the word church. The kingdom is what is prophesied in, in the Old Testament, what is specified in the New Testament, and Jesus taught in this pattern of prayer to pray for the kingdom. Church is different. Church and kingdom are never the same. They're never the same in the scriptures. They're never the same in any context. They're always different. When our Lord spoke these words, thy kingdom come, kingdom is to be understood in its Old Testament sense of a messianic kingdom prophesied centuries ago. And it looked forward to a time when the Messiah would establish his kingdom and that he would rule and reign on the earth. I mentioned a while ago, the length of that kingdom is not specified in the Old Testament, but it is in the New Testament, Revelation 20. So when we read the words, thy kingdom come, we are un. We are to understand that this is a petition for the coming of our Lord's rule and reign on the earth. Now, listen to me. You know, all the people that I referred to earlier in churches all over the globe that recite the Lord's Prayer every Sunday morning. And may I say, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that, okay? It's just, that's a fact. Nothing wrong with it. But of all the people who stand uh, and, and recite the Lord's Prayer Every Sunday morning, if you understand what I have just told you about this being a messianic prayer, a prayer for the messianic kingdom, you will understand more than the majority of those who stand every Sunday and recite this prayer. It is repetition, it is rote, and little thought is given. What in the world does this mean? What are we praying? Why are we praying these words? That, I think, is the first misconception that I would point out that pertains to the Lord's Prayer. I think I can show you another way in which this prayer is misunderstood. This is a model prayer. It is a pattern of prayer. Um, One man two centuries ago called it a primer on prayer. It was designed specifically to be instructed. Why? Did Jesus give these words? Why did Jesus speak this? Because his disciples had asked him to teach us to pray. This is to be instructive. And I don't believe that Jesus gave this prayer so that the disciples could repeat it every day. And I think that verse 9 supports that. Look at the way verse 9 opens. Pray then in this way. He doesn't say pray these words every day. Pray in this manner. Pray in this way. So again, I say this is instructive. Uh, Jesus is teaching his men about how to pray. It was a model. It was a pattern. It was a primer. Uh, And therefore, it might just as well be called the disciples' prayer too. We call it the Lord's Prayer. It might, and, and that's appropriate. That's not inappropriate at all. But it might be also called the Disciples' Prayer because he was teaching them how to pray. Um, this past week, 
I was uh, shown by a friend plans of a house he's building. And they're coming along pretty well on it. Uh, he wanted to show me a couple things on it. Foolish question. Almost to the point of being asinine. When the house is done, are they going to live in the plans? Or are they going to live in a house? We've got some seamstresses here. Another illustration. We've got some seamstresses here. Uh, you folks uh, who have that ability, when you make uh, and sew a dress, do you wear the dress or do you wear the pattern? Same thing here. This is a pattern. This is a primer. Jesus was using this to teach his disciples how to pray, what to pray for. He didn't say pray these same words all the time. One other thing I would suggest as we begin thinking about this. I know that we call this the Lord's Prayer, but may I say to you, this is a prayer that Jesus could never have prayed. This is a prayer that Jesus never could have prayed. Do you know why? Look at verse 12. Forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. Is that something Jesus could have prayed? Answer? No. No. Having said all of that, I was concerned, and that's the reason I've referred to it at least twice already. I was concerned that people might think their pastor is anti the Lord's Prayer. I'm not. All of the years of tradition, all of the years of church history are behind calling this the Lord's Prayer. And we're not going to change it. Okay, We still will call this the Lord's Prayer. But I do want us to think clearly about it. When we refer to the Lord's Prayer, do so because He is the author of it. Not because He prayed this prayer. Because He didn't. So we have a model prayer. We have a guide for the disciples to pray in a time when the kingdom of God was being offered to the nation Israel. Now, if you will look at these verses with me for just a few moments... And I'm not really going to deal with um, <clears throat> any of the specifics. In my, this is just basically an introduction to get us to thinking about the Lord's Prayer this morning. But if you look at it, there, there's several ways. Uh, well, I say several. That's an understatement. There are hundreds of ways to outline the Lord's Prayer. Two of them I, I think a great deal of, and I think they are simple. They're easy to get a hold of. Let me mention one. If you'll just let your eyes flow down through verses 9 through 14. There are petitions concerning God. Hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. Those are petitions concerning God. There are also petitions concerning man here. Give us this day. Forgive us our debts. Lead us or deliver us. And those two can stand as one uh, or they can, you can separate them. So there are petitions concerning God. There are petitions concerning a man here. It's possible to outline this prayer in another way, and that is to see five particular areas 
in which our Heavenly Father is concerned and which we should be concerned. Look through it again with me, if you will. There's God's person. Hallowed be thy name. There's God's program. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. There's God's provision. Daily bread. There's personal purity. Forgive us. And there is God's protection. Lead us and deliver us. I have taught the Lord's Prayer using both of those outlines and several others. I'm inclined to come back to this one that shows us five areas that God is concerned about and that we need to be concerned about. Would you notice, have you noticed as we just glance through there looking at two different outlines that are possible to use when studying the Lord's Prayer? Uh, have you noticed the all-embracing nature we have in this model prayer? It's concerned with God's glory. It's concerned with our needs. And not just our physical needs, but it's also concerned about our spiritual needs. Not just our present needs, daily bread. Not just past, that is forgiveness. But it's concerned with the future as well. Deliver us from evil. Now, these things I felt like in my own heart, in my own preparation, need to be said before we jumped into uh, chapter 6, verse 9. I'm going to do that next week. I want to ask you a personal question right now. No verbal answers, of course. How do you pray? I mean... How do you verbalize things when you come to prayer? Think about it. Most of us are in some kind of, um, I don't like the word rut, but most of us uh, kind of have the same way that we pray. We get into a routine. What is the first thing you pray about? Most of us begin our prayers something similar with the words to the words our Father. Where do you go from there? What's the next thing? Or the next two or three things that we bring up when we pray? Our Father, and you fill it in for yourself. I fear that um, it is so easy to get into taking care of me, myself, and I, and my family first. I've got this need, and it's the first thing out of the box. This prayer um, is alleged to have been actually prayed by a man by the name of John Ward, and it comes down through a, a number of books on prayer. It comes down from 1727. 
Uh, this man carved a niche for himself in all of time and eternity by the way he prayed. Uh, listen to this man and see if it strikes a responsive chord with anybody in this room, okay? Not the same things, but the same way. Listen to it. O Lord, thou knowest that I have nine houses in the city of London and have lately purchased an estate in Essex. I beseech thee to preserve two counties, the two counties of Middlesex and Essex, from fire and earthquakes. And I also have a mortgage in Hertfordshire. And I beg thee also to have an eye of compassion on that county. And as for the rest of the counties, thou mayest do with them as thou please. He goes on. O Lord, enable the banks to answer all of their bills and make all the debtors good men. Give prosperous voyage and safe return to the mermaid sloop for because I have not insured it. And because thou hast said the days of the wicked are but short, I trust thee that thou wilt not uh, forget thy promise as I have an estate in revision of the death of, and mentions a name, uh, a profligate young man. But he wasn't done. Preserve me from thieves and housebreakers and make all my servants so honest and faithful that they may always attend to my interest and never cheat me out of my property day or night. I see why this came down. It was repeated down from 1727. What's this man doing? Everything he's praying when he began his prayer has to do with him. And our Lord turns that around. He changes that. He reverses that order. We are to pray for things that are that we need, that we desire. We are to pray for those things. Don't misunderstand that. But Jesus just simply reverses the order. And I think it's an important lesson. In true prayer and in genuine worship, God must be first. When you pray, what do you say about your Heavenly Father? Not what do you say to Him, what do you say about Him when you pray? I believe, based on this passage that we're going to look at, I believe Jesus wants us to pray and have at least something to say about the Heavenly Father. I wonder if you're like I am. And that is often I find myself when I go to pray thinking about me my family, things that pertain to Ross. I don't think I'm the only one who would have to be guilty to that. I have made the suggestion a number of times to a number of people, memorize the attributes of God 
And when you go to the Lord in prayer, remember some of his attributes to him before you ask for anything. Now, the, uh, folks, I, I don't want to be overly dogmatic about it. You know, when Peter was sinking, he didn't ask, he didn't run through the Lord's, you know, uh, attributes. He said, Lord, save me. That's appropriate. Okay? But just as a general matter of praying, we need to put him first. We need to put his interests first. First, not mine. His interests first. Put Him first in our praying. And I want to challenge you to do that. And I will do so as we move through here. Let's put Him first in our praying. To whom are we making these requests? Let's tell Him. What kind of God is He? Let's tell him. And if you don't know what the attributes of God are, uh, then just go back to the Psalms and start reading the Psalms before you pray. The psalmist often did this. He talked about the Lord first. We need that. I need that. You need that. Who's first in our praying? Pray with me. Not unto us, O Lord. Not unto us. But to thy name be glory. Bless the Lord, O my soul. And all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of his benefits. Father, may your love capture the hearts of those who have no Savior. May your gospel be spread throughout the earth. May the Holy Spirit of God convict of sin, righteousness, and judgment and bring many to the Savior. We lift up the name that is above every name. You are the Father of all mercies and the God of all comfort. With the prophet of old, we exclaim those words, holy, holy, holy. We give thanks to thee. And we ask our Father that you would teach us to pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, dear people,
often my messages on Sunday morning do not give a full-orbed outline of the gospel. It isn't that we don't believe it. I have a ministry to people who don't know the Savior. I realize that. People need to hear the gospel. But I also have a responsibility to teach God's word to the saints. People who have already come to faith in Jesus Christ. And may I say to you, I have a hard time balancing those things. This morning, for example, I talked about praying. I'm going to continue to talk about praying for the next several weeks. I haven't said anything about Jesus' death on Calvary's cross and about the fact that all men are sinners in need of the Savior. But you know what? I don't believe That people coming to hear something about the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is solely dependent upon this poor preacher. I do have a responsibility to preach the gospel. I do also have that responsibility I mentioned a while ago about teaching the saints. It is not always easy to do the, both those things at one time. But let me say, if you are here in this place this morning, you will know, nobody else may know, but you will know whether or not you have put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. You know that. Is, has there ever been a time in your life when you realized that you were a sinner? God help us. I hope there's nobody here that doesn't think they're a sinner. The Bible says all men are sinners and have come short of the glory of God. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. It's not purgatory somewhere in between heaven and hell. It's death. It's having an eternity in front of you without Jesus Christ. Now that's what the Bible says. But the Bible says God sent His Son, Jesus, who knew no sin whatsoever. And he was made sin for us. Somebody took my sin and yours on himself and died. He paid the penalty. See, I said a while ago, the wages of sin is death. Paul says that. The wages of sin is death. Wages are something that you work for. Somebody took the sin, that which I had worked for, on himself. That's Jesus. And he died for them. Somebody, hear me well, somebody has to pay for your sins. Alright? Somebody has to pay for your sins. Either they're on Jesus or you're going to pay for them. The gospel is that Jesus loved you and died for you. And if you'll trust him, He'll see you all the way home to heaven. 
Where are you this morning? I asked Christian people a while ago, where are you in your prayer life? How do you pray? Now I'm asking you if you're here and you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior. Do you know that? Are you willing to acknowledge that before God? And simply say, thank you, Lord Jesus, for dying for me. I realize that I'm a sinner. And I'm trusting you now. I'm confessing my sin. And I'm trusting you as best I know how right now. And asking you to be my Savior. Have you ever done that? Generally speaking, I like to have the invitation with Chapel Church open. If you've trusted Christ as your Savior and you're here and you don't have a church home, if you've got a good church where the gospel is being preached, go there. I'm not trying to take anybody away from any church. They preach the gospel, good. Go there. But if you don't have a church home, may I say to you, you need one? And if you've trusted Jesus, we'd be happy to have you part as part of Wake Chapel. If you've never trusted Christ, you don't need to worry one particle about church membership. That's the wrong thing for you to be concerned with. What you need to be concerned with if you've never trusted Christ is where am I going to spend eternity? And so the invitation is open. You can trust Jesus where you are. You don't have to walk down an aisle. You don't have to walk down any aisle. You can be saved right where you're seated. If you'd like to make it public, it would be a great blessing to the church family. And I believe that the book of Romans talks about publicly speaking about your faith in Christ. If you've never trusted Christ, just remember that he loves you. Please don't be offended when I say this. You do not know anybody who loves you enough to die for you. You don't know anybody. There's only one. And he demonstrated it. You might have others say, you know, I would die for you. Well, don't ask them to demonstrate it. What are you doing with Jesus? What are you doing today with your faith life? Do you have life in Christ? If not, what are you doing about that? And if you are in Christ, what's your prayer life like? I need thee every hour. Number 428 in your hymnal. Number 428 in your hymnal.
I would like for us to sing the first and the last stanza. First and the last stanza, number 428, I need thee every hour. If God has put something in your heart to do with him, some transaction with him, you do that while we sing, if you haven't already. Do that now. And if I can help you, I'll meet you here. Shall we stand? Amen, Dr. Al. Thank you. Olin Fuquay is our deacon of the day. Olin, if you'll come and ask God's blessing on this is the day that the Lord hath made. And just ask him, bless our day, bless his day, bless us in his day. After he prays, we're going to sing. God be with you. I love to invite you to think about somebody when you're singing this. Not just a general, mm, okay, God be with you. Think of somebody. You don't have to verbalize their name while you're singing the song, but think of somebody. God be with you till we meet again. Olin, pray for us, please. Before I pray, I want to mention that um, if you're a visitor here in our church today and you don't have a Bible in your home, allow us the honor of presenting one to you. There's no presentation involved. There's one on the uh, table in the narthex. When you leave, you just take that with you. You would do us an honor. I think Claudia had some fitting words to say about prayer, and then Dickie kind of kept it off for us. No matter what the question, no matter the difficulty, no matter the concern, prayer offers the answer. W. Bingham Hunter writes in his book, The God Who Hears, prayers are the free acts of men and women, and God is not dependent on or limited by them. But he is pleased to bring his purposes into reality by responding to prayer. Let's give him that opportunity. Will you bow your heads with me, please? Will you close your eyes? Will you open your hearts? And let's talk to God. Our loving and gracious Father, teach us to pray. Teach us to pray more effectively. Teach us to bring our prayers, our petitions, and our thanks boldly and persistently to the one true, loving, living God. You spoke through the prophet Jeremiah and exhorted, call to me, and I will answer you. That was because you like to hear from your people. You openly call us through your son, Christ Jesus, and we should be absolutely in awe that we can talk directly to the God of creation. What an honor. It's with that same boldness and with that persistent nature that we remember those who are on our prayer list for Gordon and for Ruby, for Tom, for Charles, for Dot, for Tracy and Mary Marie McCarran. There are those that need your healing touch, Father. There are those that need to be encouraged. And as Joe travels, Father, we just ask that you would uh, be with him, give him protection, hover over him. Father, there are circumstances that uh, can benefit from your leadership and loving care. There are some outspoken things. They may be outspoken, but they're not outknown. Father, we ask that you will be with the people of Louisiana. The heavens have opened up and are just flooding them, and they're in a dire strait, Father, and we just ask that you would protect them. Father, we lift our prayers to you for this nation, and if it's your will, we would ask that you would save this land from those who seek to destroy it. Father, we ask your provision for the mission of the week, the chosen people ministries, as they take your message to the Jewish people. Be with them and encourage them. 
Make them persistent. Father, we give thanks to the visitors that you have brought into our midst today and pray that you have spoken to their heart during this time of worship through word and through music. Father, we ask that you would have them return to us and again worship with us. In this coming week, God, we ask that your hand be upon each of us. Give us your protection. Give us a bold witness. And where the opportunity to witness for you is granted, we pray for the right words and the right attitude. And, Father, if there's one person in this room this morning that doesn't know you as a Lord and Savior, we just pray that you would not allow them rest until they take that action. As we leave this place and go into our own, to our own specific mission field. Give us boldness. Give us persistence. For we go in the name of Christ Jesus, that name above all other names. Amen.